Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I love this message of Peter. I, I, I love learning about Peter. Peter's one of my favorite guys. And I think it's probably because when we look at Peter as a person, like we did last week, we see how you know, unpredictable his life was. But the one thing that you could predict was the fact that he would say things that probably weren't part of his plan. And we saw how... He was the disciple who, when Jesus called, he, him and his brother just dropped their nets to follow him. How he often just blurted out things and said things and was passionate, but yet overcome with fear and trepidation, he denied knowing Christ at all. And it's interesting to me how when we look toward his message here on Pentecost, it's not that far removed from that time. 
And yet here he is, used by God to be the voice, the mouthpiece of Jesus in a way that would usher in a new age. And that's the message that we're going to focus on today. A few elements about this message that I I think are pretty interesting are, first of all, the language that Peter uses. The way he speaks to these people is interesting. First, as we saw from from the text from last week, people heard the message in their physical language. That means that when they came from other areas that spoke different languages, God had ordained it by the power of the Holy Spirit that the gospel message would be spoken in a language they could physically understand. He also spoke their religious language. Peter quotes their scriptures, which are his scriptures, and and he speaks to them about things that are familiar to them to relate to them what's going on. And then he also speaks their personal language. He he brings them there. He says, these are things that you have seen. These are things that you have done. This is the promise that you have had. And what I find really interesting is that when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit empowers this uneducated fisherman who never went to Bible college or never had a degree, probably wasn't confirmed, uh, you know, didn't have all that going on for him that we have. And when the Holy Spirit falls upon him, he's able to quote by memory this obscure passage in the book of Joel, as well as some passages in, in, in uh, the Psalms. So, so he's able to, to call to mind these scriptures. And what's interesting to me about that is the fact that when the Holy Spirit speaks through people, it's not so that we can give our opinions. It's not so that we can give our perspective. It's so that we can give God's perspective and that we can give God's commands. So when the Holy Spirit speaks through us, typically we're going to find ourselves uh, bringing Scripture to people. We're going to find ourselves illuminating God's Word, not just, well, you know, here's my thought. You, You ever have those moments where you say something to someone and you go, I don't really know what I was talking about. That wasn't really something that I had said. I would never have said that, but God just in in His Spirit fills you and gives you the words to speak, that's how you know when you're being led by the Spirit, is when the words that are coming out of your mouth are things that you wouldn't normally say. I think it's pretty safe to say that for Peter, this was pretty atypical. I mean, I can't imagine Peter out on the boat quoting these passages, but yet here he is, a man who just, you know, a few weeks before had denied even knowing the Lord, and he begins to to speak this message. Now, I want to just spend a little bit of time in this passage from Joel, because it's interesting to me what this passage is about. I mean, this is not your lovey-dovey, feel-good, let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya Bible passage. This is an apocalyptic passage about, about judgment and about, uh, you know, God bringing a new age to this world and about fear and warning. And yet Peter quotes this text. Now, now what's it all about? Peter is saying, ultimately, and I'm not going to read through the entire passage, but all this this you know, moon turning to blood and the sun being darkened and the great and terrible day of the Lord. All of this language is common Old Testament language referring to God's judgment. God's judgment and his, his wrath. Now, some people read language like this in the Bible and they think that it's exclusively referring to, you know, the end of the world or the end of time or whatever. But the fact is, this language was used in Scripture over and over to refer to things that happened in history. Armies that were defeated, nations that were subdued, things like that. So this isn't language that's some sort of mystical out there, uh, you know, language that doesn't affect anything or that we can think about. It's, it's stuff that's, that he's talking about that really happens in history. In particular, Peter's talking about this passage in Joel and saying that these events of Pentecost... These events where the, where the Holy Spirit is empowering the people right there on the spot, this is the fulfillment of all of these things that had been talked about. 
He's saying this is about what's happening right there in Acts chapter 2. Jesus uses this language too. In Matthew chapter 24, he's walking with his disciples and they're looking at the temple and, and they asked him a question. They said, Jesus, when, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus begins to, to talk to them and he gives them signs and he begins to tell them things to look for. And he tells them this. He says that there will not be one stone left upon another of this temple. And he talks about this great and terrible day of the Lord and the sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood. And then he tells them this. He says, all these things will happen within this generation. He says, this generation surely will not, take, will not pass away until all of these things have been fulfilled. Now, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about Acts chapter 2. He's talking about this new age that was coming. You see, Jesus used this language to talk about the fact that the current age, the way things were, the way they related to God, the way they understood things, would soon come to an end. So here's what it's about. It's about the end of the age. I'm going to talk this morning about two ages, the old age and the new age. Now, when I say new age, for clarification, I'm not talking about Shirley MacLaine and crystals and chanting and all that kind of, you know, occultic type stuff. I'm talking about the new age as defined by the Old Testament and as defined by Jesus and as defined by Peter through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the old age referring to the old Jewish sacrificial temple-centered old covenant worship system, the old religion which was centered on the temple. Okay, the temple was a huge deal to the Jews. It was where they was where they believed God physically dwelt on earth. And in the temple, there would be repeated sacrifices by human priests that would go into the temple with animals and they would atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And for people to be saved in the old age, it was believed that you had to keep the moral law, keep the law that Moses laid down and that you had to participate in the religious life, the, the covenantal life of the church. So that's the old age. And that was the age that Jesus said was coming to an end. And that was the age that Peter recognized was over when Pentecost happened and the Holy Spirit had came. Because Jesus had told these guys, go and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And now it was here. And Peter stands up and says, it's coming together now. We are at the precipice of a new age. And things are not going to be as they were before. This age was over. It was condemned by God. The age was over where people needed a high priest to kill an animal and offer it to God on their behalf because now Jesus had become the greater high priest. The age was over when keeping this law from Moses was thought to lead to salvation, to be the way to eternal life because Jesus came and declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The age was over where God was thought to dwell in a building with four walls and speak only through a select few. That age was over. The age was over where you needed a religious institution to declare you worthy or unworthy to participate in the life of the worshiping community. And the age was over where salvation was something human beings earned by good behavior and religious ritualistic participation and submission. See, that age was over, and I'll tell you something, if you look back in history, when it came to an end, it came to a violent, bitter end. For just as Jesus prophesied, just as Jesus foretold, in 70 AD, the Roman armies led by the emperor Titus came to the city and they destroyed the city, including the temple. They burnt it to the ground and they slaughtered more than 1.1 million Jews. 
They destroyed it completely. The age of the temple was over the great and glorious, terrible day of judgment from the Lord. Jesus himself told Caiaphas, the high priest, and if any of you saw the Passion of the Christ, you might remember the scene in the movie where Caiaphas is interrogating Jesus, the high priest, and he says, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? And Jesus looks at him, and this is in Matthew's text, and he looks at him and he says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power. And it's at that moment in time where Caiaphas tears his clothes and he utters the words, blasphemy. And he backs away from Jesus and declares that he is now, should be crucified for for claiming to be God. Jesus said, Caiaphas, you're going to see this. And indeed he did. When on the clouds, coming in judgment, this army came and smote the city and destroyed the temple and put an end to this temple, ritualistic, religious way of, of relating to God. Now, there was a new age. A new age. The last age. The last days, according to Joel. According to Peter. That doesn't mean the last days of the earth. It doesn't mean the last days that, you know, the rapture is going to happen tomorrow and we can all do this. It means that this is the days that have been prophesied for and, and there's no other days like it. These are the days that are centered on a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These are the days where one sacrifice has been made for all time. And in Hebrews chapter 10, there's a beautiful picture of this where where Jesus comes into the, the Holy of Holies in heaven with his own blood and offers the sacrifice to God on our behalf. And the sacrifice was so pleasing to God that it never needs to be repeated ever again. Jesus said, it is finished. It's been done. There's no longer a ritualistic sacrificial need for the atonement of sins because Jesus was the greater high priest. He was the greater sacrifice. We recognize in this new age that salvation is the gift of God, not earned by human efforts. We're not saved because of what we do or because of what we don't do or because of how good we are. We recognize that in this age we're saved because of God's choice and because of what God has done. And we see also in this new age, as especially emphasized on Pentecost, ordinary men and women are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of the kingdom of God. See, before this, it was only thought that the priests did the work of God, the rabbis did the work of God, the Pharisees did the work of God, the church does the work of God. And what what Peter is showing us now is that the Holy Spirit has come for all of us. And whomever the Holy Spirit empowers, that person does the work of God of God. God, through Jesus, has redeemed his people from all that, from the old way. And now, we don't look to a building to find God. We don't recognize that that there's one place any more holy than another place. The Bible says that we are God's new temple. He lives inside of us because we have a relationship with him. So are you getting the difference here? Are you seeing the old age versus the new age? And, and, and for us, we go, yeah, of course, we, we know that because we grew up with that, right? I mean, we went to Sunday school, we went to church camp, we learned all about Jesus. We knew that the message is, is this, Jesus is Lord, right? We get that. Well, you, what you have to remember is this, number one, this was new information for these people. And then for number two, for, for us, we have to, to, to realize that even though we may know better, it's so easy for us human beings to, to, even with this new information, to slide back into the old way of doing things, the old age, isn't it? You say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. 
How have I done that? Let me ask you just a few questions, and you can see whether you can relate to this. How many of us really believe that we're saved or that you go to heaven because you're a good person? I mean, you know that. Sometimes people say stuff like that when someone dies. Oh, well, we know he's in heaven because he was a good person, you know? Or we better do good things so we can go to heaven. Some of us really believe ultimately that God loves us more when we're good. You ever find yourself believing that? That if I'm, if I'm just better, then God will love me more. That's old age thinking. Some of us believe that, that the, the ritualistic religious things of the, of the, of the church are the things that, that make us closer to God and bring us into to relationship with God. Do, do, you, do you relate to that? I mean, that's why we baptize our babies, right? And that's why we, we have confirmation, right? We go through those things. And I'm amazed at how many people, you know, go through those things, and once they've gone through them, they leave never to come back, Right? You get your kids confirmed, you get them baptized when they're babies, then you get them confirmed, and once they're confirmed, then they, can, they don't have to come to church anymore. I love that, right? Or, or, or how about being a member of the church? How many people believe that being a member of a church somewhere, you know, is what's important? So, so I don't, I'm not talking about being part of a, of a church and being part of a religious community and, and the family of faith. I'm talking about my name's on that list. For many people, that's a huge deal, you know that? I mean, Pastor Mike told me that there's 2,200 members of this church. 2,200 members. But yet, only about 1,100 people that actually come here. Now, what's up with that? Now, I know some people say, wait, hey, hold on, man. My, my great-grandma is one of those people, and she can't come to church because she's, you know, like, incapacitated. Okay, I get that there are some people like that, but there's not a 1,000 of them. See, I think a lot of people have this view that if their name's on the list, then somehow they're a member, and that's all that matters, right? So I used to sit in these new member classes, and, and, and people would come in, and they'd come to the church, and I'd always want to know why you got there. Like, how'd you come to this church? And I was always hoping in the back of my mind, it was like, oh, because we heard the sermons were so great, right? That, was, that never happened. It was, a lot, of times, a lot of times what I heard was this. Well, we just moved up here to the area, and, you know, we were Methodists where we come from, so, you know, we needed to find a Methodist church, so we have our, we'd like to have our membership transferred here, and so they would do that, and then they would never be seen or heard from again. It's just like, is that what you do? You move to a new town, you get your license changed, your mail forwarded, and your church membership transferred, right? It's just what you do. Now, I'm all for that if it means something. If it's because we want to be part of what God is doing in a body, and we want to be part of a church family and grow and serve and be on God's plan. But if we do that just because we think that that means something to God, then we have fallen back into the old age, people. We've fallen back into the old way of believing that our salvation and our faith experience is about the things that we have to do and less about God. How many of you believe that, that you, know, you need a pastor to pray for you so God can hear your prayer? I, I have a, a friend of mine who, who I could never break him of this habit. He'd come up to me every Sunday at church and be like, Pastor Keith, I just need you to say a prayer for me. I got a big week coming up. I want to make sure it goes well. You know? And I'm like, well, then say a prayer. Well, I need you to do it. You know? Or sometimes I'll have someone come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Keith, I, I've got this friend or this person in my life who they're really struggling with something and they're, they're far from God. I need you to call them and talk to them. I don't have like little God fairy dust that I just do this and everything goes, you know, it's, it's, it's but people have this idea that somehow there are certain human beings because of their office or position are somehow closer to God than others because of the position that they hold. People, that is old age thinking. That is not a biblical view. 
Now, of course, we have authority and things like that, and we have people that we learn from and submit to, but to think that there's any person who's higher than another person because of their standing or because of their job is ridiculous. I mean, you'll see later on in the book of Acts when Peter and the apostles walked into a place and people tried to, to fall at their feet. They said, get up. What are you doing? Even angels, when they come in, if someone bows down, get up. We worship Jesus. We worship him. See, old way of thinking is, is more about human institution and what human beings do. And that was the whole system they were a part of. And, and if we're not careful, we can turn our same exact world into that old system. See, Peter's message was singular, and it was clear. It was about Jesus, and it was about the new age. It, it wasn't about any of these three things that we see you know, up on the screen that, that a lot of messages seem to be about. Peter's message was not about politics, even though they were living in a politically charged climate of oppression. It was not about how to live a good life, you know, which is more of a motivational speech, really, than a, than a, a gospel message. He wasn't calling the people together on Pentecost and say, all right, let me come here. Let me tell you how you can all be winners. Peter's message was also similarly not about morality. It wasn't about, all right, here's what you have to do if you want God to like you. His message was different than that. His message was that the promise that the nation had hinged everything on was not about a military commander or a king like David, who they were so in love with, King David. They put all their hopes on, on someone to come and be just like King David, to lead them out of oppression and to lead them to glory and to, to lead them. And what Peter came to do as he quoted those Old Testament passages was say, hey, Jesus is the greater David. Jesus is better than David. Everything that you've ever hoped for when you thought about what God was going to do through the Messiah, what the reality is, is ten times better. Jesus is better than what you expect him to be. He's greater than what you thought he was. You know that old comic book kind of flannel graph Sunday school caricature you have of Jesus that you gave your life to when you were a kid? That, that you know, that's, that's your expectation, but Jesus is greater than that. He's better. And they say, wait a minute, why are you beating up on my view of Jesus? I like those comic books. I was talking to some friends last night in a church, and, and uh, they're, they're in charge of the resource table at their church. And I said, what's the most popular books that you sell at your church? And they said, the Jesus Children's Storybook. And I'm like, that's awesome. You know, he said, our church is really young. I'm like, wow, you weren't kidding you know, but we grow up with these ideas of Jesus. I want to try to like pull your idea about Jesus apart for a few minutes and try to determine whether it's, you know, the old view Jesus or is it the new view Jesus? Because just like you can have an old age religion and a new age religion, and I don't, again, I don't mean the crystals and all that stuff. Our, our own view of who Jesus is can be so influenced by our old way thinking that we wind up with some kind of caricature of Jesus and not the real Jesus. Remember, Peter said, whoever would call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And many of us have called upon that name, but I'm going to ask us this morning, if the way that we're living our lives and our proper understanding about who God is, if that lines up with what Peter was talking about here. What's your view of Jesus? Is it the old age view? In the old age view, you know, it's a lot more about focused on your performance. Jesus is looking at you, wondering if you've lived up to what you're supposed to do this week. Jesus is looking at you wondering, were you good or were you bad? But also at the same time, Jesus is here to do what you want. The old age view, Jesus is your little best friend that if you're good and you're nice, you know, he'll come along and he'll do what you want. 
He's concerned with your agenda. He's on your page. And yet, he needs constant reaffirmation that you love him and that, you know, things are going to be okay. That's the old age Jesus. You like that view? For many of us, it's, it's kind of the view we hang out with, whether we realize it or not. What's interesting to me about this view is, is we have this Jesus that we have to work to earn his approval so that he can then do our bidding. Isn't that strange? We work so hard to get him to love us more so that he can do what we want. Now, does that sound like Jesus or does that sound like Santa Claus? I, I think it's a lot more like Santa Claus. We, we, we do the right thing so we can be on the nice list so we can get the presents that we want. And we want to be careful not to get on the naughty list because then we're going to be in trouble. How many of you, if you look at your faith and just step back from it, you go, man, that's how I've been living with Jesus. I've been believing this, this, this way that it's all about who I am and what I do and, and me, 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 and whether I'm in this and whether I'm on that and whether I had this going on or that going on, and, and, and i got to do it right so that Jesus can do what I want. See, the message of Peter and the message of the gospel is that we serve a God that does not need our approval our permission, or our understanding. And he certainly doesn't need our help in coming up with his plan. Let's talk about the new Jesus. The new Jesus, where things are not focused on our performance, but focused on his performance. We don't look to what we do. The gospel points us back to what Jesus has done. The gospel is the good news about a historical event where God came into humanity and, and intersected with humanity in such a way that now we are redeemed. The gospel is a message about what has happened. And, and we're focused on what he has done, on his performance, on how great he is. In the new view of Jesus, we're invited and empowered into his purposes. It's not about our agenda. It's not about our purposes. It's about God's purposes and God's plan, and he invites us and empowers us to participate in it and be a part of it, and that is awesome. In the new view of Jesus, it's not built on performance, it's built on love and relationship. So you can trust God, and you can follow God because you know that he loves you and has a relationship with you. That's really what you want anyway, right? I mean, you don't want God to treat you according to how good or bad you are, right? Because if the standard is how good God is, we're all in big trouble. But he loves us. We're in relationship with him. And lastly, and I think this is a big deal for some of you more than others, he's secure in his ability to accomplish his will. And here's why I think that's a big deal. Maybe, maybe you're a person who's, whose life has been pretty, pretty predictable and things have gone pretty well. Maybe, maybe you, you came up with your plan for your life and... You know, you planted the work, and now you're working the plan, and it's going pretty well, and you've got a handle on things, and it's going well. If that's you, then, 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 you know, you don't really necessarily feel like you need that right now. But if you're a person who's ever been in a situation in life where things have been out of control, unpredictable, unknown, or maybe the plan you have has been completely derailed. Anybody live like that? I've been there. And maybe you don't know what to do. And maybe you're not sure the best way to go. And maybe you don't know which way is up. And maybe you're not sure what God's got going on. And maybe you don't know what tomorrow brings. If that's you or that's been your life, then, then you need to rest assured that God is secure in his ability to accomplish his will for you. It's not dependent on you having to figure it out. It's not dependent on you having to behave appropriately. It's not dependent on you understanding everything. Too many times we get hung up on the fact that we don't understand. We say, God, help me understand so I can do the right thing. God never says to you, you better understand so you can do the right thing. He says, love and obey and trust me, and I'll take you where you need to go. 
He says, put me in the driver's seat. And whether it doesn't make any sense to you or not, really is completely irrelevant. But see, we're stuck in old way, aren't we? In old way, God's our co-pilot, right? You ever see that bumper sticker? In old way, God has to consult with us to come up with a plan because he's insecure about it on his own. In old way, we bring God, you know, into our agenda and hope that he gets on board if we're good enough. But in, in the new way, no, we recognize that we get invited into something far greater than we can ever possibly imagine as we get on his plan. But that's, that's unpopular sometimes. I mean, the book of Acts would look a lot different if the church in those days acted like the church today acts. If, if the church today, if the church of Acts got together, you know, we'd have a board meeting, we'd have a whiteboard, we'd have charts, we'd have goals, we'd have agendas, we'd have plans, we'd have measurable things that we want to accomplish. And I guarantee you, none of those things would include at the top the death of our leaders, I hope, violent persecution, um, you know, and complete betrayal and rejection by our families and eaten by lions. You think we would plan that? I don't think so. Imprisonment, all these type of things. But yet, that's exactly what happened in the early church. And you know what? That's why we see all the results, all the miracles, all the things that God did. We always say, oh, we want to we wanna see, you know, a kind of church that, that sees the kind of things that the church in Acts sees. Typically, they're talking about chapter 2, right? They're not talking about the other chapters where, where things are, are violent against them, are they? But if that's God's agenda, are we willing to trust him? See, if we as individuals, if you, if, if I, and us as a church get on board with the new plan, with God's plan, and we let him guide and dictate to us, our job becomes less about figuring out what we're supposed to do and more about following God and discerning what he's called us to do. Big difference, isn't there? Big difference. You guys, as you think about your lives and where you're headed and what's happening in your life, don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what you think God wants you to do. Spend time trying to figure out how to live the way God wants you to live and trust him with where he's going to take you. See, that's the difference. So why are so many people still trusting in Jesus for their life but not willing to get on his plan? See, if you're ready to do that, he's ready to receive you. Now, many of us say, well, I want to do that. I want to get on God's plan. I want to I have the new view. Well, before you jump in on that, there's three things that you need to be willing to sacrifice before that can happen. You, you've got to be willing to sacrifice your agenda. You, you've got to be willing to, to sacrifice your will. And you've got to be willing to sacrifice your sin. You willing to do that? Because in order to be on God's plan, he has to be the driver's seat. And when we sin, we're taking that control back. We're saying, nope, God, I know you have this way. I'm doing it my way in this area of my life. I know you want this for me, but God, I'm doing that. And God's like Pastor Mike said last week, you know, God is a gentleman. And if you want to walk away from him, he will allow it. But you can't live in both worlds. You can't have an old view way of Jesus and a new way of, of Jesus at the same time. Just like you don't lose 50 pounds and wear the same pants. Just like you don't buy a new car and hook it up to a horse to drive around. You don't give your life to Jesus 
and then take it back every time a decision has to be made. So are you willing to step into this new age? Are you willing to be part of what God's got going on? If so, Peter tells us how we should change ages. And it's in the next text. You can read it when you get home. The people ask him, they say, what are we supposed to do now? See, they're still stuck in that age, aren't they? What are we supposed to do? Give me something to do. There's a, there's a part in John chapter 6 where the disciples ask Jesus this question. They say, hey, what are we supposed to do to do the work that God requires? They want to know, do we got to take a Bible class? Do we got to do this? Do we got to join this? Do we got to have that? We gotta, you know, he says this, the work of God is this, to believe in the one whom God has sent. To believe in the one whom God has sent. And Peter would say, look, you got to repent, man. Repent. Now, that's kind of an old school word, isn't it? You go, what do you mean, repent? Oh, yeah, okay, I'm got to be good now. No, no, no. Repentance is much bigger than that, isn't it? Repentance, the word repent doesn't mean just change your behavior a little bit. It means change everything about your direction and your paradigm in your life. The way that you relate to God, the way that you think about God, the way that you view God. Peter says you got to let all that go and now you got to get on a new path. You got to say goodbye to that old view, the old way of relating to God. Now you got to get on track with the new way of relating to God, which is not about you, it's about him. It's amazing to me what can happen in a person's life when when that becomes their focus. When they, when they stop reading books about themselves and start reading books about God. When they, when they stop thinking so much about their own feelings and they start thinking about God. When they stop talking so much about what they want to do and start thinking about what God wants them to do. It's amazing what can happen. And that's how we get into this new age. And I believe with all my heart that when we do that, when we're on track for that, yeah, things are, 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 can get crazy, just like they got for Peter. This was a man who was hung upside down on a cross at the end of his life. Not the guy who'd write How to Have a Great Life Now book. And anybody would buy it. This is a guy who laid it on the line, who went to prison, who was beaten, who denied his Lord one time or three times, and then repented of it and never did that ever again because he had a new view of Jesus. What's something that you're never going to do again because you have a new view of Jesus? Maybe it's, getting God to try to do what you want. I don't know. Maybe it's some behavior. Maybe it's some idea that you think. Maybe it's some religious thing that you've been putting all your hope on because you did that when you were a kid. Now you're going to be fine. I don't know what it is, but I know this. If you come into a relationship with the true living God, you'll never be the same. You'll transition from one age to the next age. And not just you, but all of us as a church Get ready, people, for where God's taking us. It's going to be amazing. But let's make sure we're following this message. We're following God. 